My friends, Purim is approaching. I want to explore this holiday like we do all of them and really delve into the depths of what this means. As we know, as we've explored all these holidays, the Almighty does not ask us to do anything nonsensical. He doesn't ask us just to waste our time and get drunk and shoot off fireworks for the hell of it. Everything he asks us to do is for a very specific reason in a very specific point in time to help us accomplish our mission here of completing the creation and establishing his kingship here. But I want to, I want to back up a little bit before we get into this and I introduce our guest. And I want to explore something I began to look at when learning Torah and beginning to look at the world through the lens of Torah. And that was the rationale for a lot of the holidays of the secular world that I was engaged in. The mindless following of all these activities. You know, I had a conversation with a Jew many years ago and he said, you know, these, these Orthodox Jews, you know, I understand they don't celebrate Halloween. And I said, yeah, I don't think they do. And he asked, so why not? And I thought about it and I asked the following question back to him, which was, why do we celebrate it? It's a pagan holiday. We're basically training our kids in the craft of panhandling for candy. Like it comes from the, the worst roots. It does nothing to bring us closer to God, just the, the opposite. So why do we do it? And my friend responded, well, because it's fun. It's an American holiday. I said, okay, fun's okay, for sure. But then I said, in order to step it up a notch, I asked him, do you celebrate New Year's Eve? And he said, of course. New Year's Eve is a great holiday. You go out and party, you have fun, there's fireworks. And I said, well, let me tell you the, the story of New Year's Eve. You see, there was this Pope, Pope Sylvester, who was a raving anti-Semite, loved killing Jews. And he approached the Emperor of Rome at the time and said, hey, let's form an alliance. We're raking in so much money. People are giving us their money to absolve them of all their sins. We got a great racket going on here. Let's team up. And the Roman emperor said, look, my people won't go for it. But Pope Sylvester said, but there's something we have in common. We both hate Jews. And the Roman emperor said, sure, that's true. He said, look, on December 25th, which is our God's birthday that we celebrate, you tell the Roman citizens that you will totally not enact any penalties against them for killing Jews, raping Jews, beating up Jews. They can have a free pass. Can you sell that? And the Roman emperor agreed. And Pope Sylvester said one more thing. I want to move New Year's Day to January 1st. So everyone at the end of all this revelry, the getting going out, getting drunk and celebrating what they now call Xmas caroling, which originated with going out and getting drunk and beating up and killing and raping Jews... It will all culminate on my birthday, January 1st. And they formed an alliance. So I told him this story. He said, well, Dan, no one celebrates New Year's Eve for that reason anymore. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. It's just a fun holiday. And I said, okay, what about if it was Adolf Hitler's birthday? Would you still come back and say, well, people aren't really acknowledging it's Adolf Hitler's birthday, but we're just having fun. And he said, no, of course not. That's totally different. And I said, so why is that different? They both killed Lots of Jews. He's like, yeah, but 
And after contemplating, it's like, I don't know, which is different. And I said, is it possible that you, it's because you saw the pictures and the videos and heard the stories of people who suffered under the, the Holocaust, that it's so ingrained in your mind that the thought of celebrating the life of a person who did that to your brother and sisters, that that would create anguish? And he said, yes. And I said, so the only difference between Adolf Hitler and Pope Sylvester is that you have no pictures. You have no, nothing in your memory of your brothers and sisters that he killed. But does that mean we shouldn't honor them still and not push it to the side in the revelry of celebrating New Year's Eve, the birthday of a man who killed so many of our brothers and sisters? And he conceded and said, yeah, that makes sense. But back to our holidays, because what I told him is like, we have these moments to celebrate, but they come from holy places. They come with the purpose of connecting us with our creator and helping us accomplish our mission here. So I want to explore Purim. And it's something that I've been observing now for about four years, but I, I lack a depth of real depth of understanding what this holiday is truly about. You know, I, I know when I went to Rabbi Ari's home for the first Purim party around four or five years ago, him and his brother, Rabbi Yokoff will be, they said, look, here's the mitzvot. They explained the, the primary mitzvot. And they got to this part. They said, well, and one of them is to get really drunk. And I said, like a good Jew, I will do and I will hear. And I ran off to the bar. But I would like to really get into what is behind all this. So ask my, my dear friend, the Rabbi Ari Winkler, to join us. Now, Ari, I have not had on before. He's someone I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for. He is the founding father of the shul I go to, Heimish, the one you've heard me speak so fondly about. It's had such an amazing impact. I don't know what I would have done if I came to this community and did not have the community of Heimish here to, to be a part of. But he is someone that definitely has holy chutzpah. He is the Rocky Balboa of Yiddishkeit. I want to bring on now Ari Winkler to talk about Purim. Welcome to the Shema Podcast. The podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwined through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. I want to let you in on a talent I have. I have this ability to hear the nuance in voice. I meet someone... I hear them speak. I know exactly where they were born and raised. So Ari, if you could begin by talking about what it was like growing up as a Torah observant Jew in Midland, Texas. Hi, how are you? Midland, (laughs) Texas was an amazing place growing up. I used to actually, it goes back many generations when my great, great grandpa came from the boats of Galveston all the way to Midland, and he got a job in the oil industry back before (laughs) cars even existed. And since then, thank God, as my family became more observant, we made our way down south from Midland all the way to Houston, and here I am today. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. You got it. As everyone could tell, Ari is not from Midland, Texas. He's not a born Texan. He definitely has the, uh, the attitude of a Texan, but you are actually from where? Brooklyn, New York. Okay. Midwood, New York. All right. As those who know it. What brought you to Houston? 
So the weather was the main primary reason, just the beautiful weather, love humidity. No, all kidding aside. So actually what brought me here was the idea that about six years ago, the community was a beautiful, small community, very affordable. And as a lot of the Jewish Orthodox communities were getting to be a little bit expensive to live, the affordability amongst the schooling and just the tight-knit community looked like a perfect place to live. And six years later, here I am today. Beautiful. I'm glad you made that choice. All right. So talk to me and my audience. Tell us about, about Purim and what we should be contemplating, doing to get the real meaning behind this, besides just dressing up. We have many holidays in the Jewish calendar. As we all know, I'm sure that there's been podcasts regarding Sukkot and Rosh Hashanah. Most of the holidays are all biblical holidays, aside for two. And the only two that are not biblical, but they're actually rabbinical, are Purim and Hanukkah. And it's kind of amazing that till today, thousands of years later, we're still celebrating Purim and Hanukkah. And they both don't actually have amongst it certain biblical laws, but until today, we still have rabbinical commandments to do certain rabbinical laws. For example, the primary laws to actually do on Purim that we try to keep is reading the Megillah, which is actually really a letter. And the letter is one of the five Megillot. And when we read it, we actually fold it just like we would fold an old scribe reading a letter as though somebody just got a mail back two and a half, some odd thousand years ago. And that would be one mitzvah. The other one is to give things to friends. To give food to a friend, to show friendship and the connection of the Jews. And the another one is matanot to give charity to the poor. And last but not least is actually the simcha of Purim. There's a mitzvah to celebrate and that you need to be happy. Simcha means happiness. And there, as we know in Judaism, what comes with happiness is drinking wine and eating meat. And that would be the focus of the Suda Purim. I have a quick question. So I, I've heard that there, that somewhere in the Torah, there was some authorization provided to add an additional seven mitzvot to the 613. Those are the rabbinical commandments. It's not in the actual biblical, but there are seven rabbinical that would make 613 plus the seven right. would be 620. So I heard that was hinted at or is somewhere sort of referenced. And, and that's where Hanukkah came from. I, I assume that Purim is one of those seven. So actually, you're absolutely right that one of those seven are the reading of the actual Megillah. One of the seven is blessings, different blessings that we have because we don't have brachot really in the Torah. We're commanded to say a bracha after we eat, but not before, correct? Correct. Okay. Only berchat hamazon, which okay. is from bread, from okay. from fully leavened bread. So if we go through the seven, it, one would be halal, let's say, i.e., which is something we don't do on Purim, which we were going to go to get to. But halal is the praise that we sing on Hanukkah, on the three holidays that we go up to the Beis HaMikdash. We read it on 
on Shemini Atzeres, and we read a half halal on Hanukkah. Okay. Another one would be blessings. Another one would actually be washing your hands before bread to clean one's hands. And there's many reasons for ritual impurity. It's also, today everybody realizes that sanitizing, it, it helps. So another one is Erev, okay. which would be the fourth. So an Erev would be the fourth. And then we have, as we know, this is one for the women, the Shabbos candles, which brings sanctity to the home. Purim, which would mean Megillah, is the sixth. And last but not least, it would be Hanukkah. Okay. So when you look at the, the, the four vote around Purim, reading the Megillah, giving gifts, giving charity to the poor, and Simcha, there's got to be some tie-in. Like, obviously, there's two things. So there's definitely right. a tie-in. So okay. there's a big question amongst the rabbis, and it's kind of incredible because I think we need to go a little bit backwards over here okay. and understand sure. that Purim falls out in Adar. And Adar is, there's actually... I don't know if everybody knows the song, but it's Misha Nichnas Adar Marbin Misimcha that when Adar comes in, where you have an abundance of happiness, and that is one of the responsibilities. And we have a, on the adverse, we have on Av, where the destruction of the temple was, we say Misha Nichnas Av Memayek Misimcha, you should go down in happiness. So the Hasidic commentaries say that the beauty of Judaism is that when Adar comes in, we're always happy, happy, happy. And until we have a holiday called Tuba Av, which is the 15th day, Tu is Tes Vav, which Tes is a nine and a Vav is a six in numerical gematria. Mm-hmm. And therefore the 15th of Av, it says again, you could be happy. So we have 15 days. You have to be Memayet Bisimcha. And the Hasidic commentaries say that means to be less happy, but still be happy. Doesn't mean to be sad. It means right. don't be so happy until you hit that tuba av, and then all of the chazal, all the rabbis say that there was never a happiness and a party like the fifteenth of av, and that's when the happiness hits till adar, and then adar we have a responsibility to take that happiness and elevate it a notch, and that's why it's marbim on the simcha. So we need to be even more excited, and then after that we go all the way more excited, more excited. Till we hit Av again. Just tone it down a bit. Right. This is destruction time. It's a very, uh, it's a sad time. And we know right. that the nine days and we know all that. And that's where really Adar is. So I wanted to get a little bit involved with Adar, especially this year where we're actually very fortunate because we get two Adars. And two Adars is for several reasons, which is very, very exciting. Would you say that those two sort of bookends what the Almighty is trying to tell us is, one, in like in the month of Av, recognize what you lack, what you lack in the temple. Don't forget, don't get complacent in the world that you're living, especially when you live in the United States of America in 2022. Don't forget what you're, what you're lacking by having the temple there and my presence there. And then in the month of Adar, we're sort of, but don't forget to be grateful, right? It's almost like the Almighty is like telling us that one, you control your emotions and two, there's different states that also that, that add a joy. So I would, um, this is just my own personal opinion. I don't like using the word lack. I like using the word yearn more. Right. Because I always want to be grateful because everything's from the Almighty. So I definitely agree that in the month of Av, we have to really yearn and we have to go as if we just lost our own temple. And likewise, the 
on, on Purim, we're supposed to be so grateful that there was this evil king that we're hopefully going to get to talk about Please. with an with a more evil senior advisor, the primary advisor, which their whole job was to obliterate us into smithereens and just destroy us. And God saved us and God always saved us. And that's what we're trying to celebrate here. Okay. So maybe start with a, a recap of the, the storyline, because obviously that so, feeds in. So the storyline was in the year 3389, 3390. We're going to just go a little bit back. And that's the, from the time of creation, which is about 1300 BC, a little less than that. And they were still in the 70 years of exile in between the two temples. And there was certain calculations that were going on because God promised that after 70 years, we'll have a new temple. The exact way to count 70, nobody really knew how it worked. Was it from the time of when he said? Was it from the time of destruction? How those 70 years play a role was a big discussion on what was going on. We're going to fast forward to the year 3396, which is when it was the third year of Ahasuerus' kingship. And that's when the Megillah basically begins. He was seems to be the ruler of most of the world. He had 127 provinces. He had Hodu and Kush, however you want to translate it, whether it was Turkey and whether they were next to each other or not next to each other is a discussion amongst the sages, whether they were two cities and everything around encapsulated or they were two opposite ends and everything within it was the cities that he controlled. But he controlled a vast amount of cities. And that's where the story of Purim begins. He was married to a woman named Vashti and he decided that based on the calculations, no way that the seven years are not up. And God forgot about us, his chosen people. And to ensure that God forgot about us, he's going to make a massive party on behalf of one of his primary right-hand men, name was Haman, evil Haman. And he's going to make a party and for 180 days. And this party was like no other party like anybody's seen. He had everything. That's one hangover. If you like, if you like one, it wasn't a hangover because you didn't have time to get a hangover. (laughs) So it was actually continuous. But he had it all. He had good wine. He had good beer. He would have everything. If you were vegetarian, you would have a vegetarian room. He had it all. And it was just the most incredible party. He wanted to bring his wife down to show off. She was the most beautiful person amongst uh, the, all the people were recommending that he bring his wife out. And part of the reason he did this was also for the Jews to sin and be subservient to him and Haman. So he, so the, and the Jews were at this event. Oh, all the Jews went. Even the rabbis went. The rabbis went. The rabbis were like, this can't be so bad. He's inviting us. Sometimes we got to rub shoulders with the people in, in high places to get things done. That was the beginning of the sinning, but that wasn't the beginning of the... Obviously, it's the beginning of the downfall because God's plan is everybody's plan. But the beginning was when his wife came down and he wanted to show beauty. And beauty, unfortunately, because of all the... How images everything. His wife was from the most beautiful women, according to the Gemara. Talmud brings that down. She came down and um, basically, very quickly, she... God was doing Mida Kenegad Mida, revenge for revenge, because she was already treating the, the Jews terribly and they would have to work on Shabbos, that she got 
what's called um, either tsaras or she grew a tail. She had pimples. She she wasn't looking her best. She was she was she was like imagine like a good hour before a wedding and your wife is like I'm not ready to leave because I don't like what I'm wearing and what this right. so that on the extreme as far right as you can go and she's like I'm not coming down okay I didn't know this and she was adamant she ain't coming down and he's like no you're coming down not only are you coming down you're coming down in your birthday suit because you're mine I own you and if we all want to go back a little we got to remember that Achishver was actually married into it. He wasn't primed to be king. He hooked it up through his wife's side. See, here she is. She's saying no. And she's like, by the way, almost like, remember, like, I'm, I'm the reason. Fast forward, one of the main advisors, you have a big problem now. What happens when a, the wife of a king doesn't listen to the king? Everybody's going to be like, one second. King's not really in charge. You don't have much say. Off with her head. But the Muhuman where most of the commentaries say it was actually Amen, and amongst some other advisors, recommended off with the head. And okay. that's what he did. He killed his wife, Vashti. And that's where our story of how the Jews heavily got involved were involved. Okay. He now killed his wife, and now we're looking for a new woman for the king. That does not make for a good dating resume. Definitely does not. <laughs> but... Him being the king, he could bring any woman he wants to check it out. Right. And he was looking for the prime target. And he saw all these people. He went, he, he looked wide, far, over a year, couldn't find anybody. He found this woman, Esther. And Esther was the niece of Mordechai, who was our hero of the story with, among, along with Esther. And he basically decides he wants to marry Esther. And back and forth... He, Haman's giving all the advice to destroy the to destroy the Jews, and Haman decides he wants to kill the Jews. Achshverosh comes along. The Jews are not good. We're going to find them. Mordechai never bows to him, which is a big part of the problem. And Mordechai doesn't want to bow down to him. And meanwhile, all this time, Esther is getting closer and closer to Achshverosh. Basically, we're gonna we're gonna try to fast forward through all the nitty gritty because it was back and forth. The king wants to do favors for anybody that saved him because he realizes that he owes favors to people and maybe that's why not everybody's doing things. And he goes into his book of of people who saved him and he sees that he owes Mordechai a favor and he goes to his best friend, his primary advisor Haman, and says, "What should we do?" Haman has no idea who. Right. He's like, "What do I do for my best friend, for someone who saves my life?" What? Oh, he's like, what do you mean? You take his worst enemy and you take him by the horse and you just run him down the streets and you treat him like royalty and you make him like the king of the, all the royalty that the royalty should be. Achashverosh is like, that is the greatest idea ever. Do me a favor. Go bring Mordechai. Go get him. Put him on the horse. Get him up there. And that's what happened. And that's even brought down in the Megillah. All this time, they still don't know Esther's a Jew. Because she's hiding that fact until the night that we need to get saved. And that night where Esther says to Achashverosh, I need need to meet with you private for me and Haman. Haman had no idea all this time. He's all pumped. Wow. Now, Queen Esther, new queen, is inviting me private one-on-one. This is like the ultimate. And he's like, anything you want. Esther fell on Haman. Seems like uh, an angel pushed her onto Haman, and then Achshverosh was a little bit upset. Like, what's going on here? The queen. 
Ahasuerus says, what do you want? And he's like, somebody wants to kill my people. And Ahasuerus is like, who? Just tell me. And she says, Haman Haraha, there's this evil guy right next to you. And Ahasuerus bugs out and has almost remorse, says off with his head. And Haman gets killed. His 10 sons get killed. And in the actual Megillah, if anybody has one of the, the Megillahs written on the parchment, you'd see that when it comes to Haman's children's names, you'll see it's read all in one breath to show that they all died at the same time on trees that were actually built to destroy Mordechai and everybody who didn't bow down. Instead, we did the whole flip, which is Vinahapachu. We did the opposite to Mordechai, and whatever was supposed to happen to Mordechai happened to Haman. Right. And that's basically Haman dies, his children die, we get saved, and the following year we made it a, a massive celebration. And Shushan was on the 13th day, and regular cities is on the 14th day, and the walled cities would be on the 15th day. So we actually have a different Purim than Jerusalem. Okay, so there, there's this theme here that's continually playing out in Jewish history because there's this aspect of God's very hidden in this story. So that theme actually plays out in Megillah more than anywhere else, that the hidden part of God is so hidden because there are, there are two, like we said, of, of the seven rabbinical laws, two out of seven is Purim and Hanukkah. Hanukkah is God's reveal, and Purim is the adverse of that is God's hiddenness. Also, Hanukkah, the difference was Hanukkah was a spiritual destruction, and Purim was a physical destruction. Right. So Hanukkah, Hanukkah was the Greek saying, get rid of God in Torah, but live physically. And Purim was just the opposite of being physically annihilated. But both these things, I think what God is sort of wanting us to see is that there are going to be some times where the revealed miracles, but even in times like now where he's very hidden, I think he wants us to know that there are hidden miracles that he's doing all the time to protect. Absolutely. That's why it's so, I, I think that's why we do both. I think that's why those are the two things that are going to remain with us forever, according to all the rabbis that even after Mashiach, that there's going to always be the hidden part of God. And he's always doing that, like Purim, always the revealed part of God, like Hanukkah. You just open your eyes in the morning and there it is. God's there. You look outside. It's just there. And then there's the hidden part where like you put in, like let's just say with people with investments, they put in, I, I find like the the 80-20 rule applies for the businessmen where 20% of their investments make 80% of their profit and the other 80 make 20. Right. But what's also interesting, nobody likes to talk about is usually the 20 that make the 80 it's usually the 20 you think are going to make the 10. And the 80 that are making the 20, you think the 80 is all the money. Right. So that's God's way of saying, I'm in charge. You do what you got to do. Right. But I'm the man. I'm, I'm the one who's in charge, and which is very true. And I find that on a personal level. Like every time I'm like, I'm going to make so much money in this deal. Either it turns sour or not. And every time I'm like, oh, what a dumb I Okay, a friend of mine convinced me to do that. What? That turned the return? That's incredible. So that's God's hidden and reveal on a daily. Right. We just have to open our eye. One of the things is, too, that is that since Mount Sinai, God's more revealed revelation has been dimming. And I heard that the closer we get to Mashiach coming, it's going to get more and more dim until finally it just is a full light of him in control that he's here. 
And so it's, it's, I think that's always so important for us to, to, to know that sometimes there's not an so, outward miracle, actually, but it's happening. I actually yeah. just learned this this past Shabbat where it's very interesting, but I'll try to keep it to, on a simple term, that the sun gives off a lot more light than the moon, but the sun is a lot further away. You take light like that, further away it is, the more it lights you and the more the reveal. And on darkness... The adverse, the closer it is to you, the less it's going to light up. So although we may be seeing God on a much dimmer level, because maybe he's a lot closer to us. So we don't get to see it, oh, like, so to speak. But on the opposite, there are times I think that even little children today, and everybody knows, like, God's walking with us. God's with us. You just have to open your eyes. And that's and that's how I relate to it. I don't. If otherwise, you could get a little bit jaded. Like, where's God in all of it? But the second you start realizing, it's just like light, and God's with us. We just have to see it, see it. And light's more visible when there's more darkness. Go back because there there was also a steps. You know, the, the Jews had sinned. They got lured into the the festive party. I'm sure there was a lot of things going on. I don't know if it was kosher food. There, there was kosher food? There was. There was kosher food. Yeah, 100%. Everything. There were no sins. That was the hook, line, and sinker. It's always, it's, by the way, that's always the hook, line, and sinker. It's, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's always the hook, line, and sinker. The, the tricks of the evil and the Yitzhahara is always the same. It just changes. It morphs. But it's always, you're not really doing anything wrong. I'm sure there, there, there were some immodestly dressed women or no. I don't know, but even if so, maybe there were different rooms. I, I walked by. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's always the, I'm not doing anything wrong. That's the way Yitzhara always gets you. Until, you. until you're so deep in the mud that you don't realize you're doing anything wrong. Very few people do things wrong and then they're like, one second, this is wrong. We're always answering that it's not so bad. And that's usually how it all began. Once the decree by Haman was out that he was going to annihilate the Jews, there was, there's a, a fast. So after the decree came out, everybody realized we're done. They, they had a freak. They had a freak out, a meltdown. They listened. They listened to Mordechai and they asked him, what do we do? What should we do? And he guided them through days of repentance, fast, and actually incredibly... It, it was Pesach by night that they fasted. I didn't know that. It was, uh, and that's the the redemption to redemption. That was what was happening. They, they repented. Now, I also heard that you know the the midrash talks about the giving of the Torah. That when it came to the written Torah, we said we will do it here. We accepted, and then it came to the oral Torah. He took Mount Sinai, turned he over our heads, it forced it on us. But it's something about Purim was like that we accepted the oral Torah. And said, we, we accept this too. There's a lot written on it that once we accepted the fate and repented and listened to Mordechai, who was the leader of the rabbis, there were some other massive rabbis, we then accepted that as everything, as the be it end it, that the written Torah is a thousand percent we're accepting, the oral Torah we're going to accept 100 percent, and that's and then we became. It was like it was like almost like a, a rebirth, and that's what was happening. So sort of, there's theme too that God allows certain things like that to happen in the world, 
because what he really wants is for the Jew to do teshuva and, and come closer. So it's almost like there's these uh, external events that make us better. And he's always telling us just to hold on, do teshuva. Correct. The difference back then was that they knew that too. So they kind of knew that trick. And that's why they made the party. Because they were like, let's make them sin, sin, sin. God's not with them. Which they, they knew the, the kryptonite, so to speak. The kryptonite of the Jews is when we sinned. And the fear is always us repenting. Because that would obliterate any form of negative and evil within the Jewish world. So obviously you mentioned one of the mitzvahs is to read the Megillah, just to reflect on this overall story and, and the way God interacts with us. But talk about the other three and so how the they're related. Gi- so, the, so the giving of the charity is actually, and I didn't even mention, but there's a custom that people should also dress up. That's, yeah. That comes up along with it. But that's these are customs more. But the giving of charity comes along with the reading of the Megillah. Because when... It, it seems from the Talmud that when people would read the Megillah, I mean, until today, you see it, that's when people were going for the charity. And the idea is that we're trying to help everybody. Just like God helped us, we're trying to help everybody. The same idea with the Shalach Mano, where you give gifts to friends because you want to show that God, that God saved us and we're all one unit. And a lot of people say that, it, that at least I try to keep this custom, which is a very nice custom, that... It's not just your friends. It's anybody that you have some sort of, I don't want to say hate, because hate's a very strong word, but that you're not that great with or whatever. It's a great time to make amends. It's a great time, and that's the idea that we're all in it together, all the Jews and everybody. So we give to anybody, and not just your best friend that you're going to be like, yo, they're here. I gave you a birthday present two weeks ago. It's the guy that you were like, eh, I didn't want to go to his birthday. That's the guy. Because <laughs> that's what makes the connection. The Almighty wants us to stay connected, look at Correct. ourselves as, as one. The adhesiveness of the Jews. We are one unit. We yeah. are one unit. Judaism is very strong on collateral punishment because we're one unit, which is why we believe any, everything happens in the world because of the Jews, even if it doesn't reflect. If somebody something happens in Zimbabwe and there's no Jews in Zimbabwe, it's still because of the Jews. We believe that everything's happening because we are the chosen nation. Why it's happening, how the whys and hows, we don't understand. But we need to understand that it's happening because of us. It's a responsibility and an obligation. We're the gatekeepers of the world. Is there an idea, too, that this, by having this outwardly connection to our fellow Jews, is it telling us that that's an ingredient for simcha, for joy? I think so. I, I don't see any proof one way or the other. I know that the, the, the party is showing the joy, meaning the, 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 the su'uda, the mishta and the simcha. The, the drinking and the happiness is connected more to the party than the other two, which is the Shalach Manos and the Matanos Avionim, which are more connected. But Matanos Avionim is totally connected to Megillah, to actual right. reading of the Megillah. Just like till today, you would go into a shul and that's when people collect charity. Right. And the other, the I think Shalach Manos might be connected to Simcha. I, I could see that. I mean, I don't know offhand, but I would say that's a very strong possibility. It's easy psychologically to get frustrated with life. You know, maybe you're struggling with something with business or whatever, and you feel like, oh, if, if only I got that deal done or this done, life would be so good. But, but it's, it's also such nonsense. And then when you step out of yourself and give charity to the poor or just give a gift to someone, let them know you love them, even if you haven't been really tight lately, in the end, you, that makes you happy. 
That's, no, that for sure. That, I mean, that's that's direct happiness. Whenever you make amends, or even if you give a friend, then you re- and you get something in return. So I know the story about the the drinking and the dress up, but for only from a perspective of well, okay, let me let me rephrase that. I, the the dress up was always something that was well, it's fun for the kids, right? You have your dress up day, and the, the drinking thing, I always heard it in very simple terms, so we don't know the difference between Haman and Mordecai. But I don't really know what that means. I don't know where the the dress up talk about that. So we we make that experience of porn meaningful, right? Um. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go back one second because I okay. just found the beautiful Rambam, okay, in Hilchot Megillah, where he says that part of why we give to the poor is the same idea for the simcha, even that because when you give to the downtrodden, it restores their heart; they don't feel down anymore. So we're almost like paying forward the simcha part. Right. It's like a pay it forward, so to speak. Yeah. And everything is correlated with the Simcha aspect. And that's why we try to give sweets even. Um, and as far as your other question goes, with the dressing up, um, the custom is to dress up. It's also to get very, very drunk, like you said in the beginning. That you get so drunk that you don't know the difference between Ar or Haman, the cursed of Haman, which we didn't really get to. But Haman comes from Amalek, which is... What we, what we actually read from the Torah portion, that we have to destroy all Amalek. Now, what Amalek is, whether it's a nation, whether it's, a, it's an attribute, but it's, it's poison. It's, it's poison. It's, it's a cancer. It's not something that you can heal. It's something that you need to remove. Okay, so there's this uh, physical manifestation of basically atheism, this doubt in God. I'm like that. Attack the Jews, you know, freshly when they came out of through the Sea of Reeds and all those events. And I, I heard the Talmud references where they went to, and it sort of points geographically to Germany and the Hitler. But even that, even now, because we don't know who are remnants of Amalek, where that comes from, but we have an element of it inside of ourselves, that sense of doubt, that lack of amuna that I heard that we, sure. we need to be flushed. Amalek, need- uh, back to the, the numerical value, Amalek has the exact numerical value of the word suffolk, which is doubt. And that's what they create. They create the unknown. It makes you think. It makes you wonder, like, what's right, what's wrong. It's not just God. God is the main part, but it's everything. It's what's right, what's wrong, what's okay, what's not, what's kosher, what's not kosher. And it's all of that. Okay. And, and when all you have in your life is doubt and only doubt, there's a problem. There is no ever being able to tell between right and wrong. And that is not dangerous. That is... You need to remove that. Right. As opposed to most people, like you said, we have a little bit of it. So we know what's good. We have some of our doubt, but you're always able to see what's right, what's wrong. And But since we're not out really on the, the prowl uh, with our, our sniper guns, no, we focus yeah. everything. Everything's internally in our Correct. generation. So Correct. we're looking, we're using this opportunity to know that when it's darkness and when we, we are, are doubting as God there to remove that amalek inside that doubt and... Yes, absolutely. 100%. Dan, I'm glad you asked that because we're, we're not looking. We're, we're like, like we say, we're the man of the book. We're looking to help ourselves and remove our own doubt. We're not looking elsewhere. There's, there's a rabbi 200 years ago. He said that when he started off being a rabbi, he's going to fix the world. Then he realized the world is big. <laughs> so then he said, you know what? I'll fix my country. And he realized, you know, the country is huge. And then he went to fix my city. And then he's like, I'll fix my house. And then he looked at his wife. He's like, 
even her, I can't fix. You know what? I'm going to focus on fixing myself. And that's a lifetime. And that's a lifetime. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, like, that's really what we're doing. Right. Over right. here. But the the reason I was bringing up the Amalek part was because that's really where the story of Megillah comes. And that's really the celebration that we beat the doubt within us and we destroyed the Haman who we know was a descendant of Amalek after. It's not like we knew at the same time or whatever. We have now the lineage of, of Haman and we know that he was a descendant of Amalek. And therefore, also you can see it by his actions. You clearly see his actions were not rational and from the, every second of the way. Yeah. Driven not even for his own self-interest, just like Amalek in the right. Torah. Correct. It's, like it, it's just, just out pure hatred. So Pure hatred and doubt. So what really is the whole idea of, of, of dressing up and getting a knee? So the idea of dressing up is back to the Hanukkah and Purim that... On Hanukkah, everything was a revealed miracle. And right. Purim, nothing was revealed to the extent that they didn't know. The idea is that everything was so hidden that we dress up to show our hidden side. Okay. And therefore, the same idea. We get drunk, so we're trying to show God that one day a year, because God did it in a, in, in a hidden message that you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. And you also don't know the difference between Zeresh, which was Haman's wife, which we never mentioned her name, and Esther. And that's what we say. We don't know the difference between the greatness of Esther and the cursing of Zeresh, evil of Haman, and the greatness of Mordechai. And that's how inebriated you can get. Same idea with dressing up. But, what, but I still don't get like, what, what, what is the benefit? What are we supposed to be learning by not being able to, by being inebriated to where we can't tell the difference? Is so, it- so there's two major benefits that okay. I see. The biggest benefit is it's your one day to reflect that you just let go. And if anybody's ever gotten seriously drunk, you let go. Okay. And that the benefit of that is your the the, the Talmud says that if you if you have intake of wine, yatsa sod, your secrets will come out. Okay. And yayin and sod have the same numerical value. Okay. Which is kind of true always because as they say in a business deal, you really want to know what's going on in the other company, take them to a really good bar, spend a <laughs> lot of money, and you'll save a lot of money and hardship later on and you'll find out what really goes on. Right. So same idea. But on Purim, we're doing it for the opposite effect. We're drinking the wine so our secrets of goodness comes out. Right. And it's a holiday. Right. And it's a day of partying. Now, yeah, if people are going to be out of control and be so inappropriate, don't get drunk. There are other ways around not knowing the difference between Haman and Mordechai by going to sleep, which I think is a cop-out on a personal level. Coming from Midland, Texas, we grew up drinking a lot. But otherwise, the idea is to show that we really don't know the difference. Our our guards are down and we're going to get closer to God. The other element of drinking that really helps is that when you drink so much, you act like a little like a little baby. And when you're a little baby, a baby is dependent on one thing, the mother. So when we're so drunk, we realize the dependency is going to end up going to God. Okay. And that's the idea. Okay. And the idea is to get close to God. Now, I want to add one thing that I do want to say because it's brought down in the Talmud and a lot of people don't hold of this regarding the sleeping part that I only recommend if you really are going to be inappropriate but if you're an appropriate drunk absolutely I think that you must get drunk and it's and it's a necessity and it's brought down that 
there were two rabbis. It's brought down in Megillah 6b, I believe. If I had one on me, I would know for sure exactly where these two rabbis were drinking away. And they got so drunk. They actually learned together. And they got so drunk. And one rabbi in the issues with the other rabbi regarding different rabbinical laws, because they, they're so sharp and they're passionate about their rules, got up and killed the other rabbi and knocked his, basically it says he killed him. Right after, he's like, oh my God, what did I just do? And he did almost resurrection of the dead. How it worked, it's unbelievable, but it's brought down. Anybody can see it. It's there, 6B. And the was resurrection of the dead. Anyways, came the following year, and now they both lived. In the following year, they were going to have a party together. And like He's like, no way. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not going to have a party with you. And that's where it ends. So everybody says, a lot of people say, at least, I don't want to say everybody, that you see from here that you shouldn't get so drunk. But I have my own way of learning, and which to me sounds a lot more simple if you actually look at the text, even the... And you see that the following year, he didn't say, let's not drink. He said, I'm not going to have a party with you. So the drinking still stood. It was only who you drink with changed. (laughs) So to me, from that piece of Talmud, you clearly see in Tractate Megillah that you should definitely drink. It's just know who to drink with. And that's not just a lesson (laughs) for the Megillah and Purim, but it's a lesson in life. You can go with other people and... Sometimes you have the wrong drinking body and it just doesn't work out as planned. <laughs> okay, but and there's also that, that connection, like you said, your inhibitions drop. There's a greater connection between people. There's something about it, too, in, in, during that time of year, too, where there's no, like, mean drunks on Purim. It's everyone's super happy, joyful, loving to one another. I mean, there, there's there, it's a different... I think the massive difference is it's the it's the Adar factor. It's, yeah. the, it's the Marbim Besimcha. It's like... We're doing it for a purpose. It's not to run away. It's to get closer. There are two types of people that drink. Most of them are type A where they drink to forget. Right. And even amongst Jews, the hope is that they're always drinking to get closer. Right. But Purim is one of those days where it's not like we're drinking to forget. We're cognizantly drinking to get closer. And therefore, it's getting closer to God. So before you take a shot and you're like, one second, or uh, uh, whatever you're doing, it's even on a regular day, if you're like, I want to drink to not forget my issues of the day. I want to drink because I want to think and get closer to God. Either you won't really be able to drink so much because it's like going to kind of ruin your drink. Or you may actually get closer by drinking. It's sort of like the idea of having a glass of wine on Shabbos. It just, it, it changes your state, helps you remove from the, the work week a little bit. It's a little bit of state management. Absolutely, right. And I think that's what Purim is on a whole because we celebrate that from the day Rosh Chodesh comes. Okay, so you said that there, I, I never heard this before, that some people who can't drink and things like that, you said that there is, that there's an alternative of sleeping? I'd- Taking a nap because the whole idea is to let your mind not be totally cognizant. So if the, the if you can drink for whatever reasons the only other real way to make your mind not cognizant would be by taking a nap because when you're sleeping you don't really know what's going on you're in like almost like a a middle ground and that would be the other way to accomplish this rabbinical idea okay awesome anything else you want to add i think you did a really good job thank you so much um no i want to add that this week uh 
but it's going to come out later than this week, right? I want yeah. to add everybody should have a great Purim and get drunk for the right reasons and get close to God and understand that we're here and that God always saves us as hidden as he is, just like on Purim he saved us. And hopefully we can all get closer and bring the Messiah as soon as possible. Hopefully it'll come out even before the podcast. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. Right. And if someone, if someone was interested in visiting your shul, if, there were, if you're looking to come to Houston on business or meet with family, tell them how to get in contact with Heimish. If you're looking to come to Houston or meet a family, you can get in contact with Heimish either by going to heimish.org. That's H-E-I-M-I-S-H dot org. Or you could just go to the Torch Center website, which I'm sure Dan has said multiple times, and they will definitely get you in touch with the right people to have the greatest Shabbos here in Houston. And if you're stuck in the Midlands, just give me a call direct. Dan has my number. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.